0: Hello everyone, welcome back to our podcast. We're glad that you've joined us again. Uh, Lachlan can't be with us for this week's recording. Uh, We will miss him and uh, look forward to his contributions next week. Uh, My name's Cameron, definitely here, definitely looking forward to our discussion.
1: Well, I'm here as well, although my here is different to yours, Cameron, Uh, Ken. And uh, I am also. And I'm Luke. (laughs) 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 I mean, you
2: you should have worked that out because Lachlan is the one who's not here
0: our listeners are also here but they're here as they listen to this is a different when
1: that's true too
0: as well as a different place
1: it suddenly got metaphysically very ambiguous this introduction
0: yeah all right well let's avoid those um those problems let's jump in straight to the passage we're going to read this week which is Isaiah 59 we're going to read the whole chapter it's a little bit longer than the one we did last week but Some good ideas in there, and it's certainly um, Isaiah 59, in my own experience, has been lost a little between the, you know, Isaiah 58, talking about Sabbath, which I've heard referred to more often, and Isaiah 60, which is also talked about in the lesson for this week. But we might preserve our discussion for that chapter until Lachlan gets it, because I know it's a passage he's referred to a couple of times. So we are going to focus on Isaiah 59, and I'm going to start reading from the NIV. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ears too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. For your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt, your lips have spoken lies, and your tongue mutters wicked things. No one calls for justice, no one pleads his case with integrity. They rely on empty arguments and speak lies. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil. They hatch the eggs of vipers." and spin a spider's web. Whoever eats their eggs will die, and when one is broken, an adder is hatched. Their cobwebs are useless for clothing. They cannot cover themselves with what they make. Their deeds are evil deeds, and acts of violence are in their hands. Their feet rush into sin. They are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are evil thoughts. Ruin and destruction mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have turned them into crooked roads. No one who walks in them will know peace. So,
1: justice is far from us, and righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like men without eyes. At midday, we stumble as if it were twilight. Among the strong, we are like the dead. We all growl like bears. We moan mournfully like doves. We look for justice, but find none. For deliverance, but it is far away. For our offences are many in your sight, and our sins testify against us. Our offences are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities, rebellion and treachery against the Lord, turning our backs on our God, fomenting oppression and revolt, uttering lies our hearts have conceived. So, justice is driven back, and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth is stumbled in the streets, honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey.
2: The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate, and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance, and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. According to what they have done, so will he repay, wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes. He will repay the islands their due. From the west people will fear the name of the Lord, and from the rising of the sun they will revere his glory, for he will come like a pent-up flood that the breadth of the Lord drives along. The Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you will not depart from you, and my words that I have put in your mouth will always be on your lips. On the lips of your children and on the lips of their descendants from this time on and forever, says the Lord.
0: okay, there's a passage there that i that I have heard uh at least not exact word for word, but it 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 rung a bell um it was the passage according to what that I have done, so he will repay mm. uh I was when I was at school i I played a part in the importance of being earnest, and the reverend in the play, it's an Oscar Wilde play. The Reverend, who who personifies everything well intentioned but banal, is that the right word? Uh, banal, about, banal. Banal about about well everything potentially banal about religious practice. Uh, the Reverend says on one occasion that uh, that uh, someone's just died and he says, "Would would you like me to take the service? I can use my sermon on the meaning of manner in the wilderness. It is suitable for almost any occasion." <laughs> And when he finds out that this person's died, who's a a very bad person, um, and he died of a severe chill, uh, one of the ladies, Miss Prism, says, As a man sows, so he shall reap. And Dr. Trosable says, uh, Patience, patience, Miss Prism. Uh, No, charity, charity, Miss Prism. Uh, I myself am particularly susceptible to draughts. So... That's, that's the passage that, that sort of jumped out at me. There's another sort of clear divide. And in, in point of fact, it, the divide happened almost exactly in the breaks where we, where we changed voices. We and planned I, it. <laughs> I, we, I, yes, obviously. Um, I, I would call the three sections they, we, and he. Mm. Uh, so we might, we might talk about them one at a time. The passage I read was all about them. It was the problem with them. Uh, and you're you. this and you're that. Ooh. For your hands have done this. They hatch the eggs of vipers. Their cobwebs are useless for clothing. Their deeds are evil. Their acts of violence are in their hands. Their feet rush into sin. Their thoughts are evil. They do not know the way of peace. They have turned into. Cro- uh, they them into crooked roads. They've turned the paths of justice into crooked roads. And no one who walks in them will know peace. So it's a real finger-pointing sort of start to the to the chapter.
1: And we use one of those texts in what I think is a pretty finger-pointing way often uh, in what would be in the modern culture called Mm. Um, victim-blaming, particularly verse 2. Here it is, but your iniquities have separated you from God. Now look, I accept the truth of the reality uh, that uh, wrongs create distance in a relationship. Uh, you experience that uh, in marriage um, and uh, in family relationships. And I-, I seem to spend an inordinate amount of my time repairing the wrongs that I have done. Uh, I-, I once said to Wendy, why is it that I always have to keep saying sorry? Not to her, but to the kids. Um, and uh, uh, immediately answered my question myself by saying, well, because I'm always doing the wrong thing. <laughs> um, so... In 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 that sense, there is this distance that uh, and, and a separation in a relationship that's created by wrongs, oh, and and so often you, you hear that saying, you know, well, if you feel a long way from God, who's moved, um, mm-hmm. you know, must well, must be you, and, and yet I I really struggle with that because on the other hand, we say salvation is a gift of God. Well, is He choosing to give it or not? Well,
2: and and what about what about the words of Jesus on the cross? And and his his experience in the Garden of Gethsemane, so my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And please take this burden from me. You know he hadn't moved away from God, and yet it, in those moments, he felt God was not present with him.
0: Now, I mean, this is a touchy subject because I think I think generally the impression in society is that is that Christians do finger pointing too often in identifying who's right and who's wrong and this opens us to charges of hypocrisy uh but it's also the case that christians are accused of pointing their fingers not often enough there's all this injustice in the world and why aren't you calling it out there's this bad stuff being happening you seem to be quite happy with it as long as it's your you know your personal interests are being protected and this this is the accusation that's often made when christians get involved with politics
1: and it's an, accus- it's an accusation that's there in verse 4. No one calls for justice. No one pleads his case with integrity.
0: Yeah. Mm. So the challenge is that we, I mean, this sentiment of you've done wrong stuff, it separated you from God, it's just really bad, awful stuff that's happening. I, I feel uncomfortable with it. It may be that it's overdone or maybe we don't have the wisdom we need to apply it always in the The circumstances where we should but it seems to me that there are situations where that's an appropriate thing to stand up and say
1: this is wrong
0: this is wrong yeah
1: it's a hard thing to do you put yourself out there um you open yourself to a charge of hypocrisy by doing it Mm. it's interesting
2: to me um to see again the, the word justice and how how often it's repeated in this i think um, I'm just. I was just checking. Um, I think it's in every section. Yeah. No one in verse four. No one calls for justice. No one pleads a case with integrity. And then uh, verse nine. Justice is far from us, and righteousness does not reach us. Uh, verse fifteen. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice.
0: Yeah. Um, yes. In fact, that's turned up a couple of times. I'm beginning to suspect that it's something God cares a lot about.
2: You might almost get that impression from Isaiah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's certainly something that God seems to care about more than many things that we think or tell each other that he cares about. Um, You know, for instance, whether or not, and I don't eat pork, so I'm not advocating pork, but like, possibly whether or not pork is served at a church potluck matters less to God than whether the people who are disadvantaged in society are being looked after and whether they are receiving justice
1: and was it Tony Campolo who I don't know I hope I don't do him a disservice but it was certainly a, uh, a famous evangelical Christian presenter of his ilk who used a swear word uh, in a sermon and said and now most of you will be more concerned about the fact that I've used that swear word than that uh, there's all this social in- inequity in the world um, the same sort of example Cam
0: yeah Let's move on to the second section. The se- the middle section of this passage doesn't talk about them. It talks about it talks about us. Mm.
2: Do you think, um, talk, talking about the passage as a whole, at the moment, that the, the them and the us are, are the same, that, that the author has begun, you know, talking about, as a way of sort of drawing the audience in, saying, yeah. oh, they're doing that, they're doing this, they're doing that, and then switching on them.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. In... So it's looking at it's looking at it from two, the same uh, problem from mm. two different angles. Yes. Yeah.
2: You you can yeah. point fingers at others all you want, but it's not just other people who are doing this.
0: One of the passages that the lesson refers to is the one from Romans: "All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God." End of Romans three, I think. And I'm not so comfortable i don't think that that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god lines up very well with this passage from isaiah uh i think it's a very true thing i think that paul is inspired when he says it Mm. and i i think that it's the one sin is the one thing part of the christian faith that is self-evident at an obvious empirical level uh the fact that the world is full of people that are not the best sort of people that they could be uh uh and that humans seem to have trouble being the best people we could be. I think that that's important truth. I just don't see that the sentiment it embodies lines up so much with this passage from Isaiah.
2: I mean, Isaiah is not talking about that.
0: Isaiah's not talking about all people.
2: Mm.
1: It's
0: talking about specific groups. Yeah.
1: Um, Indeed, we might bring it even closer to home. Uh, I have sinned. Mm. and yes. i fall short of the glory of god
0: i think i think saying that i have sinned or we have sinned would would make it align much closer with the passage from isaiah and there is a subtle difference between saying oh well all sin mm. but to say well actually it's it's me
1: it's a bit like saying oh i love people well uh, no you don't love people generally you don't love humanity generally uh, you love by particular acts uh, yeah Done for the good of particular people. Yeah. Uh, And in the same way, you don't, uh, while it might be true that all have sinned and there is, you know, an element of uh, the fall in all of us and in humanity generally in the world that we live in, Um, uh, it pays us to think carefully about our wrong, my wrong. There's a way in which
2: that, that, um, verse from Romans used can which I find particularly problematic Um, and that is when it's used to justify an action yeah well yes everybody's sinned everybody's a sinner we can't do anything about that so we don't need to bother ourselves addressing any sort of injustice or suffering because it's inevitable we know we can't fix it
0: Um, it's a bit like the servant who buried his talent in the ground because he knew that the master was a hard master
2: It's exactly like that. It's almost as if that parable was warning us against something.
0: Yeah, it is. The irony of the parable is that the only person to whom the master is a hard master is the person who expects him to be a hard master. Mm. (laughs) He's an incredibly generous master to everyone else. Yes. (laughs) So the servant's not wrong. So he
1: will give us what we ask of him.
0: Yeah, that's a frightening Um, thought.
1: So I think
2: especially that particular take on Romans 3.23 is very much not aligned with this chapter of Isaiah and Isaiah in general, which constantly talks about A, the importance of doing things to address injustice, B, how much God cares about justice, and C, all the bad things that will happen if you, we, they, us, specifically don't address injustice. Injustice is not something... We're seeing here um, that is ever to just be left up to the Lord to deal with. Yeah. Now that said, the last part of this chapter does talk about how the Lord deals with injustice, but only you'll note after He saw that there was no one, He was appalled that there was no one to intervene.
0: Ah, that's good. That's good. We need to get there, Luke. Before we do, I I I, object, I, I feel a little uncomfortable when you say, "Well, all have sinned." And fall short of the glory God. I guess the part of it that makes me uncomfortable is that it feels a bit like a Euclidean proof.
2: You'll have to explain that for everyone.
0: Well, Euclid did circle geometry, and so it was like if two lines are parallel, and one of them, and then this, and then that moves to that, and then thus all people have sinned and fall short of the glory God. It's a statement in the abstract, uh, uh, and and it's a true statement in the abstract. Uh, but we need we need something that strikes a bit closer to home. The passage in Isaiah doesn't just say all people have sinned; it it says we have, but it it doesn't it doesn't even say we have sinned.
1: Because we are sinning.
0: It says we're doing it right now.
1: Mm. It says in verse twelve, our offences are ever with us. And in verse six and seven, well, verse seven, their feet rush into sin; they are swift to shed innocent mm. blood their thoughts are evil thoughts so cam you're drawing a uh, uh making sure that this is brought well and truly into the present uh not just some not just a sin that's uh consigned to the past
0: i think i think if you if you paraphrase the passage from romans and like i say there's no need to what's said in romans is is a good message but were you trying to align it with this passage from isaiah you would paraphrase it and say we sin and fall short of the glory of god
1: yes Indeed, aligning it with the passage in Isaiah is not a bad thing to do because uh, the very next verse, you're talking about Romans 3.23, but the very next verse in Romans 3 is verse 24, which says, And are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Mm. Um, And interesting that that chapter 59 starts with that same concept of salvation the arm of the Lord is not too short to save. Mm. Yes. Now,
0: Luke, what was the passage you said? Because the, the the third section of the passage is all about him. It's all about God. So it starts yes. with, with they, and then it turns into we, and then it turns into to him. What was the passage that you pulled out? The It was really good. I wanted to come back to it.
2: Oh, um, it's fif- 15 and 16. The Lord looked and was displeased yes. that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene.
0: So, mm. so uh, God is capable of dealing with the problem, but he's actually quite upset that we're not doing it.
2: Yes, precisely. <laughs> yeah. That's, that is exactly what that
0: verse says. Well, if, if God is the sort of God who wants to restore justice and his intention was for us to be in some way reflective of his image, if we are made in his image, then our failure to address injustice represents a significant fall from the Edenic standard
2: I I want to look um, there's a couple of things um, one is just a general observation that cam this this almost all of Ida 59 is in the present tense you know mm. the present what, what whatever it's called the one that means it's happening right now mm. present particular I've never studied grammar
0: um, I think present tense is right
2: yeah it's 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 in the present tense except for the very end where it switches to future, yeah. from verse 18. But yeah. the second thing is, I really want to look, there's almost a sort of bridge between the second part, where it's it's we, um, and the third part, where it's the Lord. Um, where So it talks about what they do, what they're doing. It talks about what we're doing. And then it says in verse 14 and 15, the consequences of what they and we are doing. It is, justice is driven back. Righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets and honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found and whoever shuns evil becomes prey, as in, as in a hunted animal. And then it goes into the Lord looked and was displeased.
1: There was no justice. I think it's yeah. interesting how the uh, uh, justice and truth, the two things about justice and truth that I think are interesting. The first is the um, uh, that they are personified in a way, they're standing, justice is standing at a distance. Um, and uh, truth is stumbling in the streets. Um, but it's also interesting, I think that there's a connection between justice and truth
2: and righteousness and honesty.
1: Yeah. can you have ju- can you have justice without truth? Can you have justice built on a lie? Um, it doesn't seem that uh, to me it seems, that they are inextricably linked. Mm. Indeed, if one goes back earlier um, into verse 4, no one calls for justice, no one pleads his case with integrity. Mm. They rely on empty arguments and speak lies. So the absence of truth uh, is, by by way of li- lies, the presence mm. of lies, is the absence of justice. Perversion of and, justice. Yeah. And the connection, uh, and the... Connection, uh, and, and the Existence of truth is associated with justice. The presence of justice—that's mm. a nice little saying, that one, an aphorism that one could come up with there, isn't it?
0: When I was on uh, a camp last week with uh, some grade ten students, they, we we led the students through some discussion questions. I didn't come up with the questions, uh, but they were really good ones. One of them was this: If you had a choice between being fairly stupid, uninformed, Ignorant of the problems in the world, but just happy through and through. You're just really happy. Um, You didn't know about global warming. You didn't know about problems in the world. Uh, You didn't realize how complicated life can be to navigate. You're just too simple to understand that life was problematic, but you're just really happy. Um, If that was one option, and the other option was being fully aware of the problems in the world to the point that where it really bothers you, uh, and your brain's always full of spinning cogs, and you're never fully content, uh, but you're cognizant of the problems in the world, uh, able perhaps to contribute towards solutions, but but you know, I guess the question is is ignorance bliss? So would you rather be ignorant and happy, or or aware of the world and and unhappy? And the students started answering, and and the teacher interrupted them. He said, just to make it clear, if you, were, if you choose the ignorant option, you would not know what you are missing out on. You're genuinely ignorant to the point that you're content. And most of the kids in the circle said that they would prefer the ignorant, ignorant and happy. And I think that this reflects, uh, this reflects the fact that people think that what their life means is just the sum total of their individual experience. And so the most, if you could choose the most content individual experience, that's, that's what a life is. In our society, a life is just an individual. Um, if you think that your life is part of something bigger, if you're part of a species, part of a village, part of a church, part of a culture, part of a community, then that's the only thing that would stop you choosing the, the ignorant and happy option. After the camp, I was reflecting on it and I thought, this is not a hypothetical choice. This is actually a choice we have made as a society again and again. Gender abuse in the workplace. Child abuse. Uh, abuse of Aboriginals in, in jail. We'd rather just not know and be happy.
1: Uh, climate change.
0: Climate change. We just, All these people who are talking about it are ruining our happy bubble. Um, there's lots of problems that where this is not a hypothetical choice. We, people... It's really tempting to just say I'd prefer not to know, uh, and and that's what that's one of the things that's being really nailed in in this passage.
1: And indeed, Cam, it really is in the que- but it's in the question, the question itself that those students were asked contains that assumption in it, because it says what would you rather, and yeah. that's the question that we expect that will be asked and that. The correct answer to that question will lead to the good life. Uh, yeah. The real question to be asked, of course, is not "Would you?" What would you rather? The real question is: Will the world be a better place if? Yeah. And that's not the question that they were being asked.
0: Can that, I just want to repeat something you said because it really struck home. We are asked always, "What would you like?" And we think that the answer to a good life is the answer to that question. Mm. Uh,
1: that's what our society assumes.
0: Yeah, that's that's good. And uh, you you don't have to be religious to find problems with that point of view.
1: Mm. Indeed, the other the other problem with the uh, uh, with the question as it was framed was one of the scenarios, um, and it. And I'm not surprised that the students answered the way they did, because it seems to me that one of the fundamental things that our uh, society asks is not whether there's justice, not what is right and wrong, but are you comfortable? yeah and and that was one of the scenarios. Would you rather be uh, in essence, uh, what value do you place on your comfort uh, compared to making the world a better place? And yeah. almost inevitably, the answer will be, well, if I'm comfortable, the world must be a better place. And I don't think that's empirically or ethically correct.
0: Mm. Yeah, and this is this is the problem. And this is, I think, where we need to... This is where it gets more uncomfortable. Um, do we really see other people's experience as something of equal significance to our own? Do Do we really see in them... The image of God. Do we really see in them? Do we see them as people, and do we behave as if they are people in like us? Um, we we do do we take the time and effort to fight for their causes in the same way that we feel like our own comfort and our own safety and our own wealth and our own you know we we regard our personal experience as being something that's ours to tend and look after. It's like we're curators of a gallery or something and and the gallery is full of experiences and we just have to like carefully make sure that they're not damaged by anyone else um and uh but do we see other are we curators of other people's lives as well as our own
1: oh that's a wonderful phrase curator curator of others lives uh do we do we truly accept the command which is the second part of the great commandment, and love your neighbour as yourself.
0: Yeah, because if we don't, then we sin and we fall short of the glory of God.
2: Well, and so coming coming back to a, a particular idea we discussed earlier, is it possible to to love our neighbours as ourselves? I mean, we can try. Can we succeed fully?
1: Does it matter?
2: And if we can't, does that mean we shouldn't <laughs> bother to try, or should we try anyway? Yeah,
0: I think we should try. There's a there's a phrase that uh, C.S. Lewis. Um, I I may be conflating different things he wrote, but I think the Uh, line of... uh, Our our
1: listeners will be pleased to know that this is the C.S. Lewis reference for this podcast.
2: Yes, everyone playing Sabbath School from Home Bingo has just ticked off C.S.
0: Lewis reference. (laughs) That's good. I think the argument went like this. In our culture, we've replaced active virtues with passive ones. So we don't talk about charity as a virtue very much. You hardly ever hear it talked about. But we talk about unselfishness.
1: It is. It's the start of the essay, The Weight of Glory, I think.
0: Yeah. So, so the difference between being unselfish, being unselfish means you, you're, you're, uh, uh, you're not actively looking for things for yourself, like you're self-denial.
1: Can I read but it? Self-denial,
0: can- yeah, do it.
1: I'll read it. It's the start of the essay, The Weight of Glory. If you asked 20 good men today what they thought the highest of the virtues, 19 of them would reply, unselfishness. If you had asked almost any of the great Christians of old, he would have replied, love. You see what has happened? A negative term has been substituted for a positive, and this is of more than philological importance. The negative idea of unselfishness carries with it the suggestion not primarily of securing good things for others, but of going without them ourselves as if our abstinence and not their happiness was the important point. Yeah. I think that's very profound, and I think you raise it quite rightly in the context of this discussion.
0: And Lewis observes that when we have learnt to love other people as ourselves, we will be allowed to love ourselves just as much as we love other people.
1: And, and, and that whole essay is directed at... Uh, the 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 weight of glory of human beings, uh, the real true value uh, of of human beings, properly understood.
0: Yeah, I, I know that certainly when I'm at school, faced with irritating students, that idea is not presaged upon me with the weight that it should. Uh, uh, I did have a student tell me this week that surely we do not need mathematicians anymore. Because we must have by now discovered all the useful numbers. It's <laughs> extremely funny, but if you happen to be a maths teacher, is extremely irritating. That's
1: yes. Uh, look, it's obvious that you have found all the useful numbers because now you're replacing them with letters.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear me. But no, it's uh, the serious point is that I need to see in that student something of of real value, where. Not running out of time, but we we keep promising uh, ourselves and our listeners to keep our episodes short and punchy, and uh,
1: well, when, maybe this is one where we can almost achieve that.
0: Almost achieve it. I'd like to suggest something that that might lead us towards closing thoughts. The passage where it says, "The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. Uh, it, basically, his creations were not doing the things that he designed them to do so he had to come in and do it himself is a pretty accurate picture of the role of christ in our own lives Mm. and and the story of the incarnation is that god saw that there was a problem and that if he didn't fix it it wasn't going to be fixed and there's nothing about this story that that gives us any cause for boasting uh being followers of christ doesn't you know give us to get back to our discussion at the start, I think we should be a bit hesitant to do too much finger pointing, even though there may be a time and a place for it. I I don't think that that the circumstances of the incarnation, um, you know, sh- show us in a very favourable light. The fact that that something so dramatic as that was needed, uh, to to help restore us to God, and and that this is a thing that God just had to come in and do on his own, on his own. On a lonely cross, mm.
2: there's a there's a really nice imagery
0: nineteen and twenty
2: of Isaiah fifty nine, um, and also verse eighteen where the islands get get their mention again. We yeah, were yes. talking about islands in earlier verses. Mm. The nineteen and twenty uh, strikes me, and you know, and I'm not I'm not one to look for messianic things in the Old Testament, particularly. Uh, I think it's overdone in our faith tradition. Uh, but that that's very Christ-like, that description. From the west to the east, like a pent-up flood, the Redeemer will come to Zion, to those who repent of their sins.
0: Yeah, and the repentance is interesting too, isn't it? Because we've remarked previously that the violence in Isaiah is specifically directed we've been a bit worried at times that God is you know clad like a warrior and he's even in this one it talks about him being vengeful uh, but that vengeance is directed at people who are perpetuating injustice and see in themselves no need for grace there's no need that they're either supremely confident uh, that they have God's support or they just don't give a fig whether they've got God's support or not and and all this violent action on the part of God is is on behalf of the needy. It's on behalf of the weak. It's on the on, on behalf of the widow and the orphan. And this is, I guess, the question that Christ posed very often in his own ministry, is in which category are you? Are, are you one of the sick that needs the doctor? Or do you think you're well?
1: One of the other things that C.S. Lewis says in his essay on transposition uh, is that uh, we're perhaps not really in a very good position to answer that ourselves because uh, uh introspection is not a very good way of uh understanding uh, our real spiritual need and i'm not sure whether i agree uh, but he says uh, uh, that must inevitably be the case uh, because of the dimness of our knowledge
0: hmm. well uh, we we might leave it there the Isaiah 60 has a lot of food for good discussion we we haven't got onto it Isaiah 61 contains the passage that I think uh Lachlan referred to a couple of times and I know he'd like to be here while we discuss that so we might uh address some of the closing chapters in Isaiah in our next discussion which is uh the last one I think on Isaiah
1: I, it must be we're on week 12 now so mhm yeah yep 13
0: it could be that we have... It depends on what the next quarter is, I guess. Uh, but if if there's a few useful ideas, where our, our discussion may spill over a little bit into the next one because I think that there's, um, there's a fairly high density of ideas in these last chapters. And I'm not sure if a 40-minute discussion will allow us to talk about them all. Uh, but in any case, uh, we'll try. And uh, we do hope that you join us for our discussion next week. As always, if you have any comments, you can email us at the address Sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com. And uh, feel welcome to, to pass this podcast on to any friends that you have or any enemies that you have. And uh, we look forward to you uh, listening in on our discussion next week.